Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 12 and a Half, A New Beginning, An Old Challenge. Hey listeners, I apologize that this episode is going to be something of a stopgap, as events have caught up with me. The death of my father, a member of my household coming down with COVID, and of course the beginning of the new semester. It's all conspired to keep me from my much-vaunted commitment to this podcast's bi-weekly schedule. I really could have thrown together a subpar episode, but hey, I have a certain professional commitment to this very much extra-professional and non-paying little podcast project. And besides, the next episode is slated to be the season finale, and I just don't want to skimp on that. So instead, I'm going to punt a bit and make you wait another week or so for the usual well-researched and plotted-out episode, and instead just share some brief reflections on the inauguration of President Joe Biden and the transfer of power from former President Donald Trump. No, I'm not going to wax prolific about my political positions or get into any rants about our 45th Commander-in-Chief, but one of the many, many ways in which this inauguration feels full circle-ish for me includes the story of where I was and what I was doing on Election Day in November 2016, while my family and friends were all glued to their television sets many slowly getting the surprise of their lives as they saw Hillary Clinton's electoral lead quickly collapse in the face of Donald Trump's advance, I was sitting 30,000 feet above the ground on a 787 bound for Japan. Yes, my friends had joked, I had fled the country on election day. And I cannot describe the existential loneliness of watching the election slowly unfold on live stream to CNN over the cabin's Wi-Fi, and looking around to see not a single face that looked like a fellow American I could commiserate with. Yes, I know, that's my prejudices speaking, as some of the people around me might well have been American citizens of Asian extraction. But I just couldn't see anyone else who was watching the results on their laptop. Really, most everyone was asleep, and I just felt so unbelievably isolated. Why was I on this plane, you might ask? I had been invited to a Japanese university in Hokkaido as a speaker at a conference on the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, and I was to be presenting about the treaty's potential impact on public education in the United States and Japan. It was a huge honor. It demanded a huge amount of preparation. I had huge nerves about it, and it wound up being a huge about-face, as with the election of the avowedly anti-globalist Trump, the TPP was suddenly very much off the table, and thus the entire conference's raison d'etre rendered moot. Here were these academic dignitaries from a dozen different Asia-Pacific countries, all now at a conference at which their entire presentations were all now rendered meaningless. I was the one exception, although not for any reason having to do with what I prepared. Those PowerPoint slides were as worthless now as anyone else's. But what I did have was the dubious distinction of being the only American invited to the conference. I was thus the only American within reach on campus for that weekend, and everyone, everyone, questions. I had suddenly gone from an obscure academic from the U.S. that no one had ever heard of, a scholar of education among big famous economists and political scientists, to the single most in-demand man to speak with, because everyone was looking at me to explain what the hell had happened. Literally, any workshop I attended, whether I was officially slated to be presenter or not, became a workshop in which somehow I was the featured presenter, with everyone firing questions my way. And since I wasn't a political scientist or economist or anything like that, and since I had to be very careful how I represented my country, 
I wound up in an endless series of very awkward conversations, public and private. The way I managed to eventually bend the topic around to my actual field of expertise, pedagogy, was to talk about the election through the same lens through which I shape most episodes of this podcast, that of the tension between the vision of American schooling as something to help the next generation develop skills in critical thinking and analysis and problem-solving, and the persistence and power of the structures of schooling that are geared towards engendering unquestioning obedience and conformity. Perhaps some blame for the vulnerability of so many Americans to big lies repeated loudly lay in schools' failure to inculcate those critical faculties. And also, to give many supporters of Donald Trump their due, Trump's message spoke to the legitimate outrage of many middle Americans who were promised a piece of the pie in this post-factory, globalized information economy, and who ended up with nothing but lost jobs and a sense that their needs no longer mattered as much as the priorities of people who didn't look like them, who didn't fit their picture of what Americans should look and sound like. It was supposed to be the job of schools, of education, to change gears from a giant engine that turned out factory workers to an innovation incubator that turned out global economy-ready information professionals. But overwhelmingly, schools kept right on preparing Americans for the world of the long-gone factory economy. And overwhelmingly, schools still do. If that doesn't change, then the disaffectation which brought Trump's 2016 victory isn't going to go anywhere. It's too early to tell yet whether the Biden administration will try and lead in the process of finally getting schools into the 21st century. To be fair, the highly localized nature of public education in our country really limits what any president or secretary of education can do beyond the bully pulpit. And while Betsy DeVos earned every ounce of the flack she took for her strident disdain for the public part of public education, ideologically, she really wasn't fundamentally different from Arne Duncan, President Obama's secretary of education or Secretary of Education Ron Brown under George W. Bush before him. The push to turn increasing responsibility for public education over to the private sector has a solid bipartisan history over the last 30 years. It sometimes seems like one of the very few things our highly divided halves of America agree on is that the American experiment in public education has reached the point where it's not salvageable from the inside, and only business people can save it by taking it out of the hands of actual trained educators. At least President Biden's current pick for education secretary, Miguel Cardona, actually has a background in education. He's been an elementary school teacher, and a principal, and an assistant superintendent, and a professor of education. By the way, he's also married to a former Miss Connecticut, so hey, the man must have all kinds of appeal. Perhaps between him and First Lady Jill Biden, another career teacher, we'll see some expertise brought to bear at the federal level. Still, it's a long road ahead, and the stakes couldn't be higher. I suppose we all see the world through the distorted lenses of our own little corners of expertise. So when I see an America so divided as to sometimes plausibly seem on the brink of civil war, I am seeing it as a challenge for education. Can education finally be that much-promised ticket of admissions for millions of Americans who feel so left behind that they're willing to put their faith in conspiracy theories and violent revolts? And can that same education help inoculate us, as Thomas Jefferson hoped it would, to not fall under the sway of tyrants and purveyors of lies and conspiracy theories. This very week, four years ago, I was at President Trump's inauguration in D.C., getting a taste of tear gas. I was a little too close to some protesters who got rowdy and were handled with far rougher treatment than the actual insurrectionists who sacked our capital two weeks ago, but this year I'm watching it all from several hundred miles away in quarantine. A lot has changed since then, but in terms of the challenges facing education, 
not much has at all. Watching the 2021 inauguration, I was particularly moved by a part of President Biden's inaugural speech where he lauded the possibilities of hope and unity, even if, quote, enough of us come together. I can get behind enough. I can believe in enough. Perhaps for our schools and for our nation as a whole, we can change things for the better enough to make a difference. In a way, that's the article of faith that guides every single teacher every day when we walk into the classroom. We're not going to somehow save every student, hit every lesson on the nail, be the perfect mentor and role model and scholar and inspiration, but what we hope to do is enough to make a difference. So too do I hope that this little mini-episode full of musings is enough to serve as this week's update, and that I'll have something a little more robust for you next time. But that's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you're in for a treat. Today's fun fact about education. The first U.S. National Teacher of the Year was Geraldine Jones, a first-grade teacher in Santa Barbara, California, chosen by McCall's Magazine and formally presented with her award by President Harry Truman in 1952. Ms. Jones passed away in 2016 at the age of 88. The most recent National Teacher of the Year is Tabitha Rossbroy, a preschool teacher at the Winfield Early Learning Center in Kansas. Bye!